to Truth Nation Podcast, Episode 8. I'm Bill Bodner. With me, the Chief, Mark Garrett. Mr. Garrett, how are you today? I'm doing great, Bill. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Hey, this is a, an interesting topic here, man. Anytime we talk about inefficiency of government, it interests me. Man, do you know, I, I want to say, say the last time we had a balanced budget in this country, Mark, was 2020. Does that sound? You know what? I, 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 I'm sorry, 2000. 2000. That, that sounds I'm, more I'm, like Yeah, 2000. Yeah. And 9-11 happened, and man, it's been, it's been a rough one ever since then. Today, we're going to talk about a, a report that was done. The name of it is the COVID ad. I'm sorry, the COVID aid waste compendium. It's a group called American Transparency. There are 501c3. You can find them at openthebooks.com. They've been around for a number of years and through freedom of information requests, through studying budgets, from reading OIG reports, they compile lists of, let's call it questionable places the government spends money. And I thought it would be interesting to highlight some of them today and then contrast where some of this money's going to other areas where perhaps the money could go, or at least talk about what the government's spending in other areas and highlight how this waste could be put to, to much better uses. What, what brought this topic to my mind? I think back in 2021, Mark, as we were going through COVID, I sat in on a briefing that was done by, if I'm remembering correctly, Department of Labor, Office of Inspector General, Department of uh, Racketeering and Fraud. And they put out some statistics back then. So this is probably, was probably, like I said, the summer of 21, so a few years ago. They said that average federal unemployment fraud was about 3.5% before COVID. Now, in the CARES Act, I guess the first, quote, stimulus bill that was put through because of COVID, there was $872.5 billion that went to unemployment insurance programs. So if just that same amount of fraud were to be, let's call it perpetrated, 3.5%, you're talking a $26 billion fraud loss at that level. What was interesting about this briefing, Mark, is the, the investigators said they expected the fraud to be between 10 and 30%. 10 and 30%. So you're talking a quarter of a trillion dollars in fraud is what I was told by OIG Department of Labor they were anticipating after this thing kicked off. Just some of the highlights from this before we get into the weeds on it, Mark. Congress appropriated $4.68 trillion to address COVID issues. And hey, I, rem I can remember back Vice President Pence saying the plan was to close down the government. I don't know if you remember, and not close down the government, close down the country. I don't know if you remember this saying, Mark, at that time, but we made uh, a lot of fun of it at my office. It was two weeks to stop the spread. We're going to shut down for two weeks. And he kept saying every, it was the tagline to almost everything, two weeks to stop the spread. That's all we need. Obviously, that was uh, a crock. And the solution, unfortunately, I think the government came up with was to throw money at it. Now, that's a whole different topic. And I think sometimes, Mark, politicians feel like they have to show they're doing something. And how do they do that? They do that by just appropriating huge amounts of money. Who, can do, who did more? Well, I appropriated $50 billion. And the guy next to him, I appropriated $60 billion. So I was actually, I did more for you. And 
it really gets out of control when you start to look at the waste, where the money was wasted, where it could have went to be more effective and everything else. So here's where this organization, American Transparency, says the, the waste was. They, broke, they estimated the fraud at $400 billion, okay? They said there was $100 billion in fraudulent paycheck protection program funding. There was $200 billion in stolen unemployment aid. And there was $80 billion in economic disaster loans that were fraudulent. And some of the couple strange things that, that were in this, of the PPP loans, now don't forget, the PPP was something that was administered or supposed to be administered by the Small Business Administration. The premise of it was supposed to help small business in this country. And according to this report, some of the largest accounting and law firms in the United States qualified for this and took this money. The other thing was of the $888 billion that this organization says went to unemployment aid, and that was through July of 23. 191 to 400 billion, which is either on either end, it's a huge amount of money, was stolen by criminals and con artists from, quote, around the world. So here's why that's especially painful. It's bad enough that this money is being stolen, right? That it's not going to the intended recipients. It's bad enough that it's criminal groups doing this. But guess what? This is the United States funding the economy of a foreign country because that criminal, those criminal proceeds aren't even being spent in the United States. At the very least, if you're going to rob from us, please spend the money here in the United States so it can benefit our economy. But in this case, it was foreign criminals stealing the money and taking it overseas. And finally, another thing that, that struck me as being especially offensive, stimulus checks to dead people, Mark, $3.6 billion. That's more than 13% of all the stimulus check payments made went to dead people. Now, I know you looked at some of the top takeaways from this report, Mark. Were there other things in there that you saw that troubled you? Or talk to me about what your thoughts are, you know, initially seeing, or actually not initially, but seeing now, looking back, how the government rushed to put this money out without the proper controls in place and what happened as a result. Bill, the first thing I want to say is anytime the federal government tells me they're here to help, I'm, I'm at best a skeptic. And, <laughs> and I mean that at best a skeptic when I hear that. And even when we're talking about quote unquote emergencies, when we're talking about natural disasters, we're talking about a pandemic, we're talking about things on this level, my mind always, it always goes back to the inefficiency and the lack of oversight when it comes to the federal government. By the way, any level of government, but right now we're talking about the feds. And this has nothing to do with intentions. It has nothing to do with an individual member of, of the government's honesty and integrity. It has to do with the efficiency. It also has to do with the disconnect from the reality that every one of these pennies spent by the federal government came out of originally the pocket of an American taxpayer. And this is something that I think even a person with the most righteous and wholesome intentions can forget and do often forget when we're allocating these funds that they come out of the pocket of the American taxpayer. They are not the money doesn't grow in trees. It doesn't come from outer space. It actually comes from, from someone who earned it. And so that's my first 
thought about any of these relief funds. So let me give you mm-hmm. one example. You touched on it about the the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund. This is part mm-hmm. of this relief program during the COVID pandemic. I'm going to read just a highlight here. The Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund doled out $76 billion to colleges and universities. Stop. That's just the first sentence in about a three-sentence paragraph. My question is why? What business does the federal government have sending money to universities in the first place for any reason? Well, we know historically now the federal government's been involved, been in bed with, with colleges and universities all across the country. And of course, going down to the elementary level of education, the federal government's involved. They have their hands in everything. But once the federal government gets involved, and that's it, they are married. They are joined at the hip. And so the federal government is, was paying these universities, giving them money, but really effectively they were paying them to be out of business like they were with other entities. And again, the, the question is, why is this a reality in the first place? Number two, and I'll read the next sentence here. The top 25 universities with the largest endowments received $801 million in CARES Act subsidies alone, while those schools held a collective $350 billion in their endowments. In other words, some of the top universities that received cash from the federal government were and are so flush mm-hmm. with money that it simply wasn't needed. By the way, even if the universities legitimately were underwater, in other words, through the pandemic, they were losing money, they were still completely viable, they were completely solvent, and they didn't need the money. But why would we, we, we be doing this? You talked about some of the law firms as well. And Mark, let me jump in there because yes, not only that, you hit the nail. They had three hundred and fifty billion in collective endowments, right? After yes. the pandemic, guess what their endowments were? Four hundred and eighty billion. So it actually grew by a hundred and thirty billion dollars. Their endowments grew by a hundred and thirty billion dollars. Yet, yet the government was providing them this funding. So go ahead. I just wanted to throw that in there. No, I'm glad. You, I'm glad you said it. I'm glad. Listen. I, I, I wish that on a personal level, I wish I could have become rich through the pandemic. I wish I could yeah. have stayed at home and, and, and gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars from the federal government. Why not me? Why just these universities? <laughs> this is the philosophical point from which I, I base all of my, my arguments, make my points is that why? Why is a university, why is a, a law firm, why are they more important than an individual? By the way, the individual from which that money originally came. And this is, they said, this underpins all of my positions on federal relief. I remember early on in this whole crisis or pandemic situation, emergency, whatever one wants to call. It, I remember Donald Trump having a press conference and, and talking about what they're going to do here early on. Mm-hmm. And he had talked about allocating $5 billion nationwide to, to deal with the pandemic for support, for probably distribution of medical supplies and things like this and service $5 billion. And I remember the mainstream media mocking him for that, laughing at him for that. What is that going to do? That's not it's a drop in the bucket. And well, we need a lot more money, things like this. I think Trump's point, I'm speaking for him, but I'll tell you what my point is. My point is, if something like this, the federal government should be involved in the first place. In other words, and we'll talk about this as well, about these various states that also were doing very mm-hmm. well 
financially and got money as well. Why aren't individual states able to handle their specific crises? I'm not saying absolutely every time the federal government shouldn't have any role in large-scale true emergencies. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in general, they do a pretty piss-poor job at it, and they waste a lot of money, as we see right here with this study. Mark, what I'd like to add to what you said, and maybe make a little distinction. You said every—I'm going to say the situation is even worse than you just illustrated, right? Here's why I say that. You said every penny of this money comes from some taxpayer. It's the sweat of our workforce in this country that funded all this. The reality is it was borrowed. It was, it's our children's sweat that we're actually using to fund, that we used to fund all these wasteful and probably, un, looking back, probably unnecessary programs. The money was borrowed. The national debt is now completely out of control. I think it's important to just throw that in there. Hey, while we're on colleges, USC, right here in Southern California, where I am, Mark, took a hundred. Where you are, million. not where I am. Yes. Where I am. No, I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they took a hundred and three million, and they have an eight billion dollar endowment. UPenn took fifty million. Columbia sixty four million. Cornell sixty four million. These are Ivy League schools, right, Mark? Ivy League yes. colleges that took this money. Yeah, and I, I think the premise that they used to apply for the funding or to get the funding, they said regis registrations or enrollments were down. The reality is, if you look at the trend, enrollments were going down anyway, Mark. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how much of it. Obviously, people weren't on campus because governments wouldn't let them be on campus. But well, I don't think... It, Bill, let me hop in there. Remember, yeah. it wasn't so much, not that I can remember, and, and I'm happy to be corrected, how I learned, mm -hmm. but I remember... Most of these stay-home policies were actually initiated and implemented by the universities themselves, from, mm -hmm. from what I right. remember, at least to a, a large degree. Maybe not every single one. Maybe some came from government, things like this. But not only were they, were they implemented by the universities, but, of course, then they had the vaccine mandates, which even if you were taking your classes offline, you were mandated to be vaccinated, which shows you the idiocy of, of large government and, and, <laughs> right. and bureaucratic uh, behavior. Um, but I'm so glad that you made this, the incredibly important point about this money is borrowed. In other words, the money was printed. The money was mm -hmm. literally printed uh, that funded these trillions of dollars of uh, money of funds that went to these states and, and colleges and other entities throughout there. You're right. But still, someone has to pay for this. And you're right. It's our children and our children's children that are on the hook for this abuse, I want to chime in about, I know you were in the federal government when this is going mm -hmm. on. I was the state government in California. By the way, mm -hmm. California at the time was showing, we're talking about states who were flush with money, right? getting money from the federal government. California at the time was showing, I think it was, I forget, $75 billion or whatever, $25 billion, whatever. It was showing a massive surplus. Now, I will say this. At the time, I didn't believe that surplus was actually real. I didn't. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that the books were cooked. When you look at when you look at pensions, by the way, and I'm a recipient of a California state government pension, full disclosure. When you look at pensions and when you look at other uh, entitlement programs in California, I think that even back then, California is way more upside down when it comes to its budget. Having said that, California 
Gavin Newsom were saying that they have this massive budget and they still got a massive influx of funding from the federal government for COVID relief. Mm-hmm. Now, I was right in the middle of watching all of this money fly back and forth with the California Highway Patrol as every person in the state government was watching it. I just happened to be the chief in Los Angeles County and Southern Division was happening. So I had my eyes on a lot of stuff. Right. I had my eyes on employees getting paid to stay home. They didn't have to use sick leave when they went home and they were getting funded. The state of California was getting funded, getting reimbursed for the these employees that were staying home because they had tested positive for COVID. They're ordered Mm -hmm. to stay home. They don't have to burn sick time. They have to burn sick time if they have the flu, if they have pneumonia, if they break their leg off duty, things like this. For some reason, because of COVID, it was a different story. And now the government's responsible for for your illness. It's all bizarre to me. But beyond that, I saw at the highest levels of government, Mm -hmm. firsthand, looking at the paperwork, what I consider at the very best, at the very best, incredible mismanagement of the federal COVID funds that were pouring into California. And I'm going to say at the best mismanagement. There are other words I want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't say that. And I actually put the paperwork on the screen, so to speak, and, and can back up. But I'm telling you right now, the way I saw money coming in from from the feds placed into this undertaking or that reimbursement or that program that was supposed to be specifically for COVID, I am telling you, it was a disgrace what happened. And it was happening in California. You know what's happening all over the place. That's what we're talking about, the COVID waste right now. And let me touch on California, Mark, since, since you brought it up. We're talking about state bailouts. $350 billion was allocated by Congress to bail out state and local governments. Here's what's interesting. And again, it's going to be a political statement that I'm about to make, but it's also a factual statement. The allocation formula, in other words, how this money was going to be distributed to various state governments, that formula was changed by Pelosi from a population-based formula to one based on the unemployment rate. So what did this do? This benefited lockdown states. If a state had a lockdown where no one was allowed to work, then obviously unemployment went up and they would receive more money. Due to this change, California got, now California, for those of you who don't know, that's the state that Pelosi's from. Due to this change, California got an extra $67 billion. New York got an extra $6 billion. Illinois got an extra $2.1 billion. And New Jersey got an extra $2 billion. Just pointing out that all these states are democratically led, okay? Florida, Vermont, and Wyoming lost billions of dollars as a result of this change. The, now, this is funny because you and I, I think on, maybe even on oh, last week's show, we talked a little bit about Beverly Hills and what they're doing in, in policing, privatized <laughs> policing. The 50 richest cities in the United States of America, Mark, got $100 million. Uh, Beverly Hills, $6.3 million. Atherton, California, the wealthiest city in the United States. Average household income of $525,000. That city received $1.3 million. Hey, this report, and again, I don't know, this seems like, I don't know where, how this ties in, Mark, but it's in this report, so I'm going to mention it. Uh, L.A. County. 
According to this report, they received so much federal aid, they paid lifeguards up to $510,000 a year. Now, I don't know what the correlation there is. I don't know if there is any correlation, but I, I heard you say a minute ago that they were taking this money and putting it all kinds of different places. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that there's a little bit of chicanery, might be the word, Mark, involved in how this money was getting distributed and, and where it was going and how it was being used. And it doesn't seem like that's something worth mortgaging our futures over. So, Mark, California, as I'm sure you well, has a balanced budget law. I've seen now that we've had this law in California. I've seen ways that they can manipulate things to make the budget balanced when it's really not balanced. But let me ask you this. Should the federal government be mandated to balance the budget every year? Should we have to generate, should we be prohibited from spending more money than we can generate, at least right now, when our national debt is so out of control? What's your opinion on that? Well, you know what, Bill? It's a great question. And the short answer is yes. Mm -hmm. The short answer is yes. I pride myself on being a big supporter, being a supporter of the Constitution and someone believes in it. And, I, and, I, and I, I'm talking a little bit out of my rear end here because I'm not positive, but I know that the balance balanced budget amendment has been thrown around and we hear that means an amendment to the constitution to balance the budget. And I think that's absolutely appropriate, but just from a fiscal responsibility, from a moral responsibility, from an ethical responsibility, by the way, from a management perspective responsibility, absolutely that budget should be balanced every year. I'll tell you right now, if my wife and I don't balance our budget every month, the collector's going to come over here and, and reprocess our house. Yeah. So we have to do it. And we're supposed to be electing people that represent our values or in, in, and address our concerns. If we as the individual citizen have to be physically respon fiscally responsible, financially responsible, I think that it's not too much to ask of our representatives to do the same thing. But 100%, they should balance the budget. The problem is here, and this is, you talk about political statements, and you're, I'm so glad you touched on Nancy Pelosi and her change, cooking the books, changing the rules so her constituents politically across the country get more money. But this is a shared issue with the Republicans and the Democrats, of course, mm -hmm. for, for perpetuity, spending more money than flows into the federal coffers every year. It has become a drug. It has become... It's really become a sedative to the mind of these people who are in government. They do not see, again, our representatives collectively do not see tax money as belonging to the individual American citizen or American citizens collectively. They see it as a cash cow to pay off political favors and to influence voters. That's what they see it as. So it's a problem. And yes, I absolutely do believe that there should be they should be required to balance the budget every year. Why not? I agree. I agree 100%. It's something that has to be done, and I think it has to be done soon. The politicians, hey, what, the, a lot of this money is being spent, let's just say, to, to remain in favor, to get reelected now. They really don't have a concern about what happens to this country 20 years down the road. And by the way, and shame on me for not mentioning this in the open, Mark, why is, this why is this subject important to everybody? 
what's happened with interest rates over the past 12 months, 18 months? What has happened with inflation over the past year and a half? Why do you think this is happening? The reason why there was this incredible spike in inflation is because the government dumped so much money into the economy. I think more money was put in the economy in that first CARES Act than in the previous 30 years combined as far as like stimulus type stuff. All that does is drive prices up. And then in response to that, the Fed has to tighten the money supply and interest rates go up. So as a result of this irresponsible funding and waste, we now it now costs more to buy a car. It costs more to get a mortgage and we're paying more for everything at the grocery store, right? That connection should not be excused by people and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be missed by people, Mark. It's an important reason why everyone should care about wasteful government spending because it drives up prices and all the things that, quite frankly, we're bitching about right now in this country. Yeah, it's a great point. And I, I think what people do need to educate themselves, and I mean that literally, people need to take 10 minutes to find out what inflation is, what causes inflation, how would, I've got a buddy of mine in the financial industry, great guy, and people say that a sign of brilliance is when someone is able to make a complex topic sound very simple or explain it in simplest terms. This is why I'm not considered brilliant because I take forever to make a point. But he says it this way, inflation is like some mice, like in a grain silo, just slowly eating away the grain at the bottom of the silo. You don't really notice it on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's making your store of grain, it, it reduces it over time and consistently makes it worth less. And that's what inflation is. People have to understand how printing money, how giving money away hurts you immediately and more importantly in the long run, your kids uh, like over the long run. Mm -hmm. I want to touch on, on, on that bill a little bit here with the, the Paycheck Protection yep. Program, PPP. Yep. We all remember that. I call it pretty piss poor. PPP <laughs> is what it was. But just to summarize here, again, I'm, I'm taking this here from the study that mm -hmm. you identified. The PPP doled out $787 billion to allow businesses and nonprofits to pay employees when they were forced to close. Nearly half of the largest 300 law firms and three quarters of the largest accounting firms were forgiven on their loans. Now, again, this is money that was loaned to these entities to pay their employees. And then for whatever reason, we could do a whole probably three hour show on why these loans are forgiven, but that's disgraceful too. Up to $200 billion was stolen from the program for small businesses. And you touched on this. By the way, Bill, when we talk about what was wasted, what was stolen, this is what so far the federal government admits to. Mm -hmm. We have to keep that in mind. Right. I am pretty convinced that they are lowballing us on what's actually missing here. Very but likely. Well, I want people to realize this. This is another very simple example. Now, I've used this analogy a number of times because it's, I think it's a good analogy. The arsonist comes, sets the building on fire, then they put their fire suit on, and the 911 call goes to them to come put it out. Mm -hmm. The Paycheck Protection Program went to businesses to allow them and nonprofits to pay employees 
when they were forced to close. Remember what it says right there. When the businesses and nonprofits were forced to close, they were only forced to close be because of federal and state mandates to close, quote unquote, not essential businesses. So the government forces you to close your doors. Then they turn around and become the savior and give you money to pay the employees and yourself, presumably, because they force you to close. Does anybody understand how insane this is? They force, they created the reason, they created the quote unquote need for these bailouts. The government did. And they came, printed money, which we don't have, that your kids and grandkids and great grandkids are going to pay back and then give it to you. If this does not illustrate the insanity of the federal government getting involved in what should be local and state issues, I don't think anything will. That's a great point. Absolutely great point. $3.6 billion of this PPP money, Mark, went to entities on the Treasury's do not pay list. The Small Business Administration didn't check the list before cutting the checks. Bill, can, for listen, I... It's all, almost like a great comedy line. Can you please read that again so everybody yeah. oh, really no. heard what you said? $3.6 went to entities on the Treasury's do not pay list. So the United States Department of Treasury keeps a list of entities and people that they are not going to pay. Either they owe tax money or they have a tax lien against them or some criminal thing. Who knows what? Guess how, guess how uh, SBA themselves say they didn't check before cutting the checks. A whopping 57,000 entities on the do not pay list were actually paid by the Small Business Administration. Um, and this was probably my favorite anecdotal story, Mark. New York Post, August 2023. Three months. And here's the crazy thing. And again, Mark, it's like the, just like you said, the arsonist puts on his gear and goes back when the 911 call is made to put the fire out. This was announced by GO DOJ, like they're, but this is my old organization, DOJ, right? I, technically, I work for the Department of Justice. Th they announced this as if they're so proud to have caught this, not realizing that it was another arm of the government that made this possible, right? Three-month investigation by DOJ caught scammers, and in one case, the stolen COVID money was used in a murder-for-hire plot. So the U.S. government facilitated a murder-for-hire plot and then proudly said, we, we solved the crime. That's scary, Mark. That's scary when that much money is going out there. You talked about accounting firms and law firms. Ernst & Young, a big three accounting firm, over 365,000 employees. Now, I, this one I wanted to talk about or at least mention because in my role at DEA, I was responsible for the territories of Guam and Saipan. Not, you know, not, obviously there's crime there, very different than what we would see here in Los Angeles or where you are in Florida. The Guam office of Ernst & Young took a $750,000 paycheck protection loan that was forgiven. And hey, I want people to understand that when you and I discussed this, and I think you said it, you said, hey, I'm just mad I couldn't get a piece of this money, jokingly, but of course th there's some amount of curiosity about that. I don't think you and I are being critical as much of the businesses that took the money, but more of a critique of the program that allowed them to take the money and allowed them to qualify for the money. And that's an important distinction. Like, 
Do, do I think that Ernst and Young did something wrong? No, I'm sure they had lawyers look at this and say, hey, we can qualify for this. We can get $750,000. Let's do it. If it's out there, let's do it. And that's what businesses do. And even in, with the tax code, that's what wealthy taxpayers do. If there's loopholes in the tax code, they're going to take advantage of it if it's legal. Paycheck Protection Program was a huge source of loss. And so, Mark, $3.6 billion went to entities on the do not pay list. Some of the topics that we've talked about over the past couple of weeks on this show, we, we talked about substance use disorder, drug addiction. Anytime we talk about that, people in the comments say, hey, we need treatment. We don't need law enforcement. We need treatment. Guess what? The federal government spent a total of $6.6 billion in substance use treatment uh, last year, right? $3.6 billion. I'm just illustrating where this money could have went. $3.6 billion went to people on the do not pay list. That could have made a 50% improvement to our, our drug treatment programs. Uh, the entire budget for the U.S. Department of the Interior, that's the agency that protects our natural resources and public lands, uh, is $12.7 billion a year, right? Um, hey, we, there's been a lot in the news recently about Boeing and inspections of aircrafts. The Federal Aviation Administration, their whole budget is $16 billion a year. And we're talking about a fraud of $200 billion you mentioned, or at least at minimum $130 billion just from this one federal program that was administered. It's, it's crazy when you think of where else that money could have gone, where it could have actually potentially done something positive for the country. Yeah, you're, you're right, Bill. That $3.6 billion figure, it seems to be popular in this report because you mentioned this early on. In the podcast, and dead people paid billions in stimulus, were paid in stimulus money. Direct payments to individuals in the form of economic stimulus checks total $271 billion, including $3.6 billion to 2.2 million dead people. Unreal. Now, and it was a very important point you made about where this money could actually go that would make a difference in the lives of Americans. And Mark, let me jump in there. I, I, yeah. I want you to continue with that. But let me say maybe we leave it in the pockets of the Americans and let them determine. Where, and I got a feeling that's what you were going to say. Like, don't take it from people. Let the people spend it. But go ahead. I had to just throw that in. No, I'm glad you chimed in. And so people realize it's not just me saying this and, you know, a, a bright person like yourself who was a DEA tax is the same thing. Well, first of all, on that topic, the $3.6 billion went to dead people is bad enough. But I want people to think about this. That was divided between 2.2 million people. I don't know. So I don't want the numbers are the division that's not important it is important but that's not my point the point is this 2.2 million times the federal government sent a check to a dead person now i'll repeat myself ladies and gentlemen 2.2 million times just in this program just with this relief program cares the federal government mailed out a check to a dead person by the way, and I'm not talking about 2020 by itself. I'm talking about historically in this country. If people think that voter fraud does not happen, you got to be nuts. If this one program illustrates that at least 2.2 million dead people got paid, 
I think we could at least say it's very possible that uh, there are invalid uh, ballots that that end up right. being counted. So that's an ancillary thing, but it also is important to the whole, the general topic here about the inefficiency of government. And Bill, what you said here about why don't we leave that money in the pockets of the individual American? Of course, I'm a huge proponent of that. But let's just compromise here. Let's mm -hmm. just compromise philosophically or operationally, practically. Let's compromise. And I say less me and other people may detract from what I'm saying here. Why don't we at least just leave it in the hands of the state? Mm -hmm. If we can agree that the federal government is doing things that are inefficient, inappropriate, without oversight, slipshod, whatever words you want to use, why would we keep sending money to them to send back to us? We all understand mm -hmm. this is how it works, right? The federal government takes your tax money. They send it to Washington, D.C. A whole bunch of elected officials are supposed to represent you. And by the way, a lot more bureaucrats decide that your money is going to be spent like this way, that way, and another way. And they send it back to the states after they take a whole bunch of administrative cost out of it. So now the dollar you sent to, 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 the Wash, to Washington, D.C. is less than when you sent it because they it, administrative costs, all this mm -hmm. bureaucracy, and it goes back. And when it goes back to the state from which it came, it comes back with a caveat. Here's money back to you. However, you can only spend it the way we tell you to spend it because it's now federal tax money. So the money comes back to you with all of these strings attached. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, would it not be better for California, Wisconsin, New Jersey, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, North Dakota, South Dakota, on and on with the remainder states to keep the money themselves and decide at the state level how best to spend it? That's my position. And this study that Bill and I are talking about right now should be exhibit number one as to why I'm right. Hey, let, let, let's talk about the unemployment stuff some more because there's interesting stuff there. $888 billion allocated by Congress. Uh, at peak of COVID, 23 million people lost their jobs, right? Here's the thing that you already mentioned, Mark, but it's worth saying probably 10 times. People were often paid more not to find work. Uh, $191 billion, now, this is an estimate by OIG, stolen by criminals and con artists from around the world. I already mentioned that. In terms of dollar amounts, just to talk about, again, if this money had been left in the States, one quarter of all road and bridge repairs needed in the United States could have been made with this amount of money. That's how much money this was that went to criminal organizations. The Wall Street Journal, April 28, 2020, had a great article. And this was probably, what, about a month after COVID started? Mm-hmm. And this is how immediately they recognized what the issue was. Here's a quote from there. Coronavirus relief often pays workers more than work. Roughly half of all U.S. workers stand to earn more in unemployment benefits than they did at their jobs before the pandemic shutdown. Employers say the government relief is complicating plans to reopen. And why is that? You can't compete. When someone's paying you more not to work, which, by the way, sounds like communism to me or socialism. How can you compete with that as an employer trying to get your business back going? People will ask, hey, how, how did this theft happen? How did the criminal actors perpetrate the thefts? 
buying hacked stolen identities from the dark web, $2 a pop. And in most states, that was all that was needed. You could get everything you needed for $2 to file a claim on the dark web and file a claim. This one I know will be near and dear to you, Mark. In California, so we already know we paid dead people, right? I think we've gotten past that. We, we know that we paid dead people. In California, $420 million was paid to prisoners on death row. The numbers... I hadn't seen that one. Yeah, four hundred twenty million. I may have to take a break and get in stored in Advil here. Hang on a second. Right. For in California, I'm going to say it again. In California, four hundred and twenty million dollars was paid to prisoners on death row, and the numbers now, the the amount of fraud seems to be about fifteen percent on the state side, state to state. About fifteen percent of all payments made were fraudulent. In Maryland, for some reason. They had a huge issue. They've since determined that at least 50% of all the claims filed were fraudulent. So not only were people, not only could you make more for not working than working, people were actually stealing identities and making completely fraudulent claims and collecting money for people other than themselves. I don't know. I, did, I remember seeing a news story, and I think it was uh, local here in California about someone going out to their mailbox and getting like 20 uh, stack of uh, 20 envelopes from the state. Somebody had filed all these different unemployment claims and used their address. And they, the investigative reporters ended up going out and covering it just because of how crazy that was. And people were, were like, hey, what, what is with all this fraud? Where's it's too much money pumped into the system too quickly without proper oversight. Uh, Again, as you said, and as I said, better to leave it at the states or in the person's pocket. Hospitals, Mark, we could talk about hospitals. I don't know. Airline subsidies. I think that was a pretty interesting one. Let me see what else we got here. Oh, federal office furniture and remote work. That's a good one. <laughs> federal office furniture and remote work. Yeah. And, and hey, you know, I did listen. The reason why I say that this, I want to talk about this one is because this is a real thing. Like one, one of the, things that this portion of the report discusses is what's called use it or lose it budgeting right. and that is a real thing i don't know that, if you experienced that in the state oh, mark a hundred percent bill i'm so yeah. glad you went down that road because there is this for people who have been in government for any amount of time the use it or lose it mentality mm -hmm. starts to take over it starts to supplant your rational thinking. And for people who haven't been in government, lucky, who've actually worked for a living nonstop and done the right thing. In other words, you're almost compelled to show that you're using the money that was allocated for a particular program or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Because if not, they probably won't give you the same amount next year. Oh, you didn't mm -hmm. use all the money we gave you last year, so why do you need it now? Which sounds good, which is good, by the way. But then they take that money and they put it someplace else, it's gonna get spent. And this is this goes to what you're saying, Bill, about lack of oversight and the speed with which they allocated these funds. There's a mentality for people in position to do it in the government to push out as much money and to as many different silos as possible. That is the mentality. I'm sorry. Again, I was in government for 30 years and in and, and management for a good portion of that. And I've seen mm -hmm. it over and over. And we'd have these phone calls and the emails are there for people who actually want to do public records act uh, discovery and requests that 
hey, we have to use this to ensure that we're going to get the same amount for the budget next year. It's a reality. It's not anything that's clandestine. It's not anything that's made up. It's absolutely real. Office furniture money was in the CARES Act or in one of the, one of the COVID relief bills. It's interesting that it even found its way in there, but it doesn't surprise me. Here's a couple highlights from that. Centers for Disease Control spent almost 250000 on solar-powered picnic tables. That was a classic. Uh, State Department spent 120000 for recliners at the American Embassy in Islamabad. And this one is a, a big expenditure. And I'm not even familiar with this agency. The Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation spent $14.4 million on new furniture for its 1,000 employees. So that turned out to be $14,400 per employee for furniture. That, that's a tremendous amount. In November, now this is at a time when in November 22, 60% of government employees were completely remote, 33% were hybrid, and 7% were at work. At my government agency, Mark, obviously, like you, the sworn people were at work. Non-sworn people were not at work. They were either full remote or some kind of hybrid thing where they were in the office very minimally. And even just eight months ago, Building utilization rates were between 9 and 35% in the federal government. The federal government, and I can also speak to this firsthand, has had a difficult time getting people to come back to work in person. That's a real thing. Yet, Justice Department used 35% of the office space that they had. They're only, that's their utilization. They've contracted for X amount of office space. They're only currently occupying 35% of it but they spent $408 million on furniture. And most of the federal agency headquarters now are one quarter full or less. And like I said, I think my old agency is right there in that sweet spot somewhere. Crazy, right? It is crazy. For those of you listening who think that rich people are undertaxed or the citizens of this country need to pay more in taxes collectively, uh, we hear this, maybe all of us should look more carefully about how much money is being spent. Um, I would rather save money than spend it. And we talk about 14000 14, or $17,000, $14,000 per person for furniture. If I spent that for myself, I my wife would make sure that the only furniture I had would be the old couch on the street. That's where I'd be yeah. sleeping. It's, it's insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, a couple more programs I want to talk about, Mark. And again, there are things that were roped into this, this stimulus or CARES program. For what reason, I don't know, but we're definitely, we've been paying for them and we're going to pay for them for, for a lot longer. Internet for all. Do you remember that one, Mark? Internet for all from this yeah. relief package. $90 billion was allocated for internet for all. And listen, this sounds good on face, although it's probably not something the U.S. government needs, the federal government should be involved in. But I try to look at it like, hey, building infrastructure, like if there was a part of the country that didn't have running water or something like that, wouldn't we want the government to, to establish those services in that area? But I tell you what, there's a, so I also, we when we have places without internet service in the United States, we have to look at why and look at why the free market hasn't uh, created that service there. And uh, usually it's because it's not profitable or it's really not a real need. Okay, so $3 billion was spent in four years under the Rural Broadband Initiative. 
the cost per household to, in that program to establish internet was $18,000 per household. Mm-hmm. And there was four projects where, buckle up, four projects where the cost per household to establish internet exceeded $1 million. That's, I'm going to say that again. The, the cost per household to establish internet connectivity exceeded $1 million per household, and the United States government funded this. The rural program was originally farm-based. Now, there was some logic behind that when, when that was added to this funding package, and I think the logic was is they were trying to, what would you call it, connect the farming industry or, and use, use technology to make it more efficient. How about that? Enhance the farming productivity by, by connectivity. Um, somehow, before the bill made it through or before this was finished, it was changed to, quote, social vulnerability was the, mm-hmm. was the tagline of where the service was supposed to go. I don't really know what that even meant. Uh, California got $148 million for 5,735 households. That's $25,000 per household to establish internet. This is the most egregious example was in Puerto Rico. One grant was $8.1 million, Mark. How many households did they connect? Two? One. Oh, man. They, they I don't know why it went high. They connected one household at a cost of $8.1 million. And there was another project in Utah, $2.3 million grant that connected two households. Should the federal government be involved in, in ensuring that everyone has a broadband connection, Mark? Well, again, I said it earlier. I'm not an absolutist when it comes to excluding the federal government from every aspect of programs or responses to emergencies. But my point is this, it doesn't seem like they're very good at it. I'll just, I'm trying to put Mm -hmm. it in the simplest terms, even for myself to hear myself speaking. It doesn't seem that they're very good at it. As an example, putting it in 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 a form of a question, all this money, these literally, we're up to about like five, almost $5 trillion yeah, we drew yeah. it at COVID. I say we, the federal government, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, threw at the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. I would like to ask anybody exactly what was the benefit? Mm-hmm. What can we as a nation as individuals, as a government, what can we, the CDC, what can we actually articulate was achieved? Yeah. What was marked Inflation, inflation, it, and higher interest rates. Go ahead. That's what was achieved that's for it. sure. Those yeah. are example, a great example. Those are articulable facts right there. Those are discernible, tangible, real, undeniable examples of what was achieved. Now, of course, what I was asking is what was achieved that was supposed to be achieved? I know. You know, saving lives, keeping people out of the hospital, getting people back to work soon. Can anybody tell me, based on the dollar spent per dollar, per your dollar per capita, things like this, how do we know if anything in a positive sense was achieved? And we don't. And quite frankly, I don't believe anything was. I think that things were worse off and quite Frankly, I'm, I am 
suspicious that more people may have died from all this involvement than if things had been left up to the states or maybe even left up to local government. A part of this stuff was tied to keeping people at home. I mean, my God, the idea, in other words, sending people home from work, putting a bunch of sick people into a household and, or one sick person into a household. Mm -hmm. And then what do you have, what happens? My God, mm -hmm. with strep throat or the flu or the common cold, you know what happens? Those mm -hmm. the, the, out there, you have kids, your kid comes home from first grade with a cold. Within two weeks, everybody in the house has the cold. And then it goes around again and again and again. Why people think that would be different with COVID, I have no idea. But don't go outside. Don't be in the sunlight. Don't go hiking. Don't go to the beach. Stay in the house and close doors and let's see what happens. And we're going to pay you to stay at home as well. I ask, what was the benefit? What was the benefit? The only thing, like you said, Bill, that we can show for sure is inflation. That's it. And mortgage yeah. rates, interest rates. Yeah. Those things we can show for sure. Thank yeah. you, federal government. Yeah. The part that I saw, and again, it's a very narrow part, my exposure to the harm that was caused by the program, and my exposure was very narrow, but it was the isolation that was caused by it, what that did to people in drug treatment. It had a, it had a major impact on that. And addiction and problems that people in recovery had during that time, that was a very real issue caused by the isolation caused by lockdown and et cetera. Uh, one more thing, Mark, that we got to talk about because I don't see how it ties into COVID, but yet it found its way into the funding bill, uh, the funding bill Amtrak subsidies. Mm. Since 2020, Amtrak has received $16 billion in bailouts. Uh, the top 10 executives at the country make over $500,000. Amtrak has lost money every single year since 1971. There's 26 passenger railroads in, in the United States. I didn't Amtrak, know that. Yeah, their Amtrak is the only one that's not profitable. So the only passenger railroad that's not profitable is run by the federal government with your taxpayer money, and it's the only one run by a government appointee. And hey, you and I have talked about this issue of who gets these appointed positions is it people with real leadership abilities or is it people who are political donors? They're working the cocktail circuit, et cetera. Amtrak this year will lose $1 billion and will largely be covered by taxpayers. And my thing, Mark, is sell it off. Why is the government continuing to, to run it? Like what? Why is well, the government continuing to run that railroad? Sell it off. One of these other profitable entities will buy it or perhaps someone will buy it and break it up and sell it to seven, eight, 10 different entities and allow it to be profitable instead of it being an anchor that our tax dollars are continually, you know, being sunk into. Instead of Bill Bodner, Mark Garrett, and the rest of the American people paying for it. That's exactly yeah. right. And we, listen, we see this, we see the same thing in California with the high speed rail. And man, we, oh. we should actually do a show on that one. That we should I'm, do a I'm, show on that one. I I'm mean, down, it. I think that would be very illuminating, but the same the train thing. to nowhere, the train, to the nowhere. train to nowhere, bullet, the bullet train to nowhere. Yes. The bullet train that has no gunpowder behind it. It's, but it's an example of, we talked about this earlier about this mindset and we have to spend the money. It's the project that we have to see through and things like this, regardless of the economic impact or the inefficiency. I'm quoting one of my favorite 
philosophers of all time, actually happens to be a former president, Ronald Reagan. Government mm-hmm. does not solve problems. It subsidizes them. Mm-hmm. And it, nothing, he, he's, he was just, he was brilliant with these pithy, very accurate sayings. And, but it's exactly right. It subsidized the problem. It perpetuates the problem. It doesn't solve it. And I think this is an example we saw here with COVID that they didn't solve anything. It didn't solve anything. Mm-hmm. I've not heard that quote before, Mark, but I love it. And that goes to something that I've said, even I've said it to you, is the government's solution to things is rarely innovation, at least at the high levels. Don't get me wrong. At the lower levels of government, there's incredibly innovative people working every day. But as far as the the political sphere, it's just throw money at it. We have a problem. Let's throw money at it. And then I can say, look what I did for this problem. I allocated $50 billion toward it. I don't know. Any other programs you want to touch on, Mark? I think we covered uh, a majority of them. 600 hours of programming left. We can talk about all kinds of government programs. But I think think that the study you pulled up, Bill, I think if people don't at least appreciate the likelihood that things didn't go so well. Again, I'm keeping things totally milquetoast here with that kind of a statement. In other words, if people can't see how jacked up the federal government comes uh, is when it comes to dealing with uh, crises, how bad they are with this information, then so be it. We can agree to disagree. But this should make it clear to almost anybody the federal government does not do a good job when it comes to utilizing American taxpayer money. And hey, I found my notes on the balanced budget, Mark, as you were talking. And it's to make it clear, it's both sides. It's Republican yes. and Democrat. And yes. in 2001, actually, in 2001, that was the last year we had a balanced budget. In fact, we had a surplus. And that almost, that's painful to hear because we know what happened in 2001 and the road that sent us down with 20 years of war and the cost of war, et cetera. It's going to take some real work to get back there. So let me just run through some figures of national debt. You talked about Ronald Reagan. When he took office in 1980, the debt was $908 billion, right? When he left, it was $2.6 trillion. So it grew. In in the eight years, it grew substantially. In 92, so that would have been after four years of Bush Sr., it was $4 trillion. Eight years later, after two terms with Clinton, it was $5.7 trillion. And then after eight years of Bush Jr., it was $10 trillion. It had almost doubled. And then after eight years of Obama, it was $19.6 trillion. Again, almost doubled. And then when Trump left, it was $27.8 trillion. And today, it's over $33.7 trillion. It's something that's completely out of control. It's going to impact our stability as a country and our ability in the future to be a world leader. I want to end with two quotes, Mark. First, this is a great one. Democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There was never a a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. That was John Adams, one one of the original founding fathers of the country. And then another one, in a nation whose debt has outgrown the size of its entire economy, The greatest threat comes not from any foreign forces, but from Washington politicians who refuse to relinquish the intoxicating power to borrow and spend. And that was actually the late U.S. Senator Tom Coburn 
in something he wrote called The Debt Bomb in 2012. Hey, that's where we're at today, and that's what the future is. I would tell people, educate yourselves on it and demand accountability. Anything from you, Mark? Couldn't agree more. That's all you got from me, 100%, Bill. Okay, thank you. See everyone next week. Take care.